if we went by the principle that those affected by a problem should be in charge of determining the solution, then the majority of the world's peace negotiators, foreign ministers, and diplomats would be women. Gender. It influences our identity, the role we play in our society, and the way that we interact with each other. The crucial role of women in preventing conflict and building peace has been recognized. Yet over the last 30 years, 70% of peace processes did not include any women mediators or women signatories. So peace, much like war, remains entirely dominated by men. Welcome to Season 6 of the Peace Corner podcast, brought to you by CSPPS, You Know Why Peace Builders, and GPAC. The Youth Thriven podcast, the Peace Corner aims to demystify peace building by giving peace builders across the world the opportunity to share their stories. We showcase the ordinary and extraordinary nature of peace building with the belief that everyone can be a peace builder. We just need to make space. This season explores gender dynamics in peace building. So who are the people making peace buildings more equal, inclusive and relevant? How are these pioneers making gender equality the norm? Keep listening to find out. Today's episode is presented by Vera from CSPPS, the civil society platform for peace building and state building. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Peace Corner podcast. Today, our guest is Inaz Milud, an indigenous feminist activist. She is the former leader coordinator of the 1325 Network in Libya and former Indigenous Senior Fellow at the UN Voluntary Fund for Indigenous Peoples. She is the co-founder and currently co-executive director of the Tamazigh Women's Movement, an intersectional organization that works to address gender, youth and Indigenous peoples' inequalities in Libya. Her works have been particularly focused on gender, peace and security, militarization, and indigenous issues and intersectionality. Thank you very much for having accepted our invitation, Inas. And to get started, I'd like to ask you, how did you become involved in the field of gender and peace building? And can you tell us one of the best moments in your career so far? Um, thank you so much, Vera. Thank you so much for the Peace uh, podcast. I think. Um, I don't, it's one of always difficult questions to ask activists in general, especially who started very young, at what is, uh, how you started and what is your favorite moment. But I feel like I became an activist. I think this is something that we always say accidental activist, but I don't believe it was accidental. I think that there's so much being uh, from the indigenous community. Uh, that hearing the stories of struggles from a very, very early age, it kind of informed my motivation to become a, a, an activist in general about indigenous issues, but also observing and experiencing gender inequality from a young age also kind of informed that kind of uh, ways of thinking and it triggered that 
that, you know, that I like to do something and act something. And I think the revolution in Libya, maybe it was the greatest platform for me to act upon these aspirations and hopes that I have for my country. And I feel like one of my favorite moments, it was actually during the first protest, the first demonstrations that I went out. It's my first time ever going out in public in a street calling for freedom. I still, I feel like I have goosebumps right now, just remembering this moment of freedom. I really felt the freedom for the first time being, I remember I was like 20 years old and I was outside just, you know, chanting for change, chanting for freedom, chanting for equality, using my own indigenous language that was criminalized in public space, you know, because we as an Amazigh people, we were uh, banned to speak our language in the streets. So having, claiming the streets as a young woman, as an Amazigh, was one of the most powerful moments uh, I've experienced in my activism. And to follow up on that, and also related to the field of peace building, one of the biggest aims of this podcast is to demystify it, to demystify what is yeah. uh, peace building, to explain what peace builders actually do and why that is important. What would you like people to know about gender and peace building? I always feel like when we talk about peace building, maybe as you said, like sometimes we have like big words uh, for them, you know, big words to to explain what's peace building and what's militarization and demilitarization. But I think for me, like as someone who have been working for so long in peace building and gender or fighting for gender equality, I do think that while we know that definition of uh, peace is not, it doesn't necessarily means absent of war, but it's for me, it's enjoying, enjoying the freedoms that we have, enjoying the freedom of movement, enjoying the freedom of choice, enjoying the freedom of being, you know? And I think that making sure that everyone with you enjoying as well, it's not only your, only your choice, but also defending other people's choice to enjoy these kind of freedoms that you have in a community and also in, in, a, in your country. So peace building is a process that doesn't take only in one place. It's a continuous, it's a long term, because when you're talking about enjoying the freedoms, that are making sure that everyone, every member of the community enjoying that freedoms, that we are as a collective are agreeing of, you know? So I think it's a, a continuous process. It's not one process and it's not a process that finishes peace while it takes works, but I hope that this work is needed for us as human beings, you know? This work needed for us to ensure that everyone is being heard, seen and valued in, a, in the community. I very much agree with you on that. I also think that it's important to make sure everyone is included and how do you think we could make the field of peace building more inclusive? I think that is one of the reasons uh, we've, me and my colleagues co-founded the uh, movement is to ensure intersectionality and to ensure the centering marginalized community at, uh, at the heart when we are talking about peace building and where, when we are doing peace building. I think that means meaningfully engaging with marginalized communities, hearing their concerns, recognizing their concerns, but also involving in 
resolving these concerns, you know? I think that is one that's very, very important. Like one thing that we also ensure is accessibility, for instance, right? Accessibilities for people with disabilities, accessibilities, language accessibilities for people with different language backgrounds, uh, accessibilities when it comes to geography as well, decentralizing our work, our peace building work in general within civil society, but also within private and um, governmental settings, you know, as well. And that's what we do, like even ensuring the human rights for all, but also particularly uh, human rights for minorities and and, for, and marginalized communities. That's including women and indigenous peoples and young people as well. Uh, so these are all these con- intersectional considerations that we also, when we think about intersectionality, it's not only about in- including them, but it's also uh, understanding these uh, distinguished experience of, uh, for instance, a young woman, you know, how young women deals with age discrimination as well as gender discrimination, and how can we make sure that we end these uh, structural barriers for their empowerment in the society, basically. I think you've raised a very important point of not just only including people, but actually understanding them. And related to that, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your current work with the Tamazir Women's Movement. Our organization started in 2000, uh, informally in 2015, but formally in 2016. We are a youth-led, so I am the oldest, <laughs> which is something we're very proud of. We're, we're the, a youth-led organization that happened. We happened to be youth. It was not something that we thought of. All of us were like younger. <laughs> we're like t- below, 30, uh, below 30 years old. And uh, it was really a moment for us where we, as people who worked a lot, as young women who worked a lot in this building and worked a lot with indigenous issues, to bring up like this intersectional perspective and inclusivity to peace building in general, you know? And I remember that one of our first work, it was very much when we are uh, raising awareness about 1325 resolution, the UN security resolutions about human peace and security. And talking about, of course, the different elements of the resolution, which is participation, protection, and and the different uh, aspects to include also indigenous issues or indigenous women issues and uh, marginalized or rural women issues within the table, within the national conversations, within the feminist movement, but also include these conversations within the youth movement, you know, their perspective of young women within the youth movement in Libya. And our work really have since progressed a lot to tackle different issues that has to do with 1325, uh, 2250 resolutions, which is the youth and peace and security. Um, And we do different works around gender-based violence, uh, women's political participations, uh, young people's political participations, also indigenous peoples and human rights, you know, uh, like raise awareness about uh, marginalized communities. One example is uh, our project, it's called Marin's Story. Uh, Marin's story is a, a story of uh, a young Amazigh woman who faces discrimination because of her gender. 
and because of her being young in a conflict uh, context in Libya. And uh, within this uh, animational video, we've done, for instance, a different cross-regional discussions with uh, young people and about uh, this story and how can we make sure to engage with uh, language that is not violent? How can we make sure that we start a dialogue together and we interact with issues of minorities and um, discriminations in a way that is uh, not violent, not toxic, and, you know, like basic elements of peace, you know, basic elements of peace and how can we communicate together as discriminated uh, and non-discriminated individuals in the community. That's one example of our work. And you've talked about the um, resolution 1325, and I'll just plan it a bit more for our listeners. In October of 2000, the United Nations Security Council adopted the Resolution 1325, which acknowledged the disproportionate and unique impact of armed conflict on women and girls. And you're also the former lead coordinator of the 1325 network in Libya, which raises awareness and monitors its implementation in the country. So I was wondering if you could tell us what have been some of the successes of this resolution so far and also some of the challenges. Yeah, I think we've started working since 2013 to raise awareness first about the importance of resolution. And as you mentioned, Vera, the history of the resolution, it's also it's a civil society feminist, uh, global feminist resolution that came after a long uh, run of advocacy and activism with the global setting. And I think this resolution has a lot of elements and the framework, it's a very successful in a sense to capture the main uh, struggles or the main concerns that usually women and girls face in a conflict settings. And I think that was the starting point on in Libya in 1325 network is to ensure like how we make sure to to do this feminist building and movement building with different allies and actors, uh, different women's organizations, but uh, even youth organizations to raise awareness about the importance of the resolutions, but also like to to make sure that what are our issues, what are like to contextualize the issues of uh, women, peace and security in Libya as well. and. One also objectives of the network, it was also to do monitoring of 1325 resolutions, how also the different stakeholders are implementing uh, 1325 resolutions in Libya, you know? And I think one of the successful things that the network managed was actually to do the first monitoring civil society report of 1325 resolution in Libya. And that report was also a key a milestone for us to advocate more for implementation and for more women, for instance, in peace building and talks, more women discussing uh, economic, uh, socioeconomic issues, more uh, women in political platforms like parliament and also local elections. So it was really a start. Uh, also, we discussed a lot the discrimination that is happening in women, for instance, the gender-based violence, the kidnapping, the limiting of uh, freedom uh, for for young women, particularly uh, and young young women human rights defenders. You know, 
So that was also like a good uh, tool for us to advocate more. Uh, right now, uh, the status, like when it comes to 1325 in Libya, actually, like just recently, there has been starting uh, talks about launching the first national action plan of 1325. There's still a lot of ch challenges ahead of us, but this is also one, uh, one this is like one step towards the national action plan and towards a commitment of our government uh, towards 1325 agenda and the women, peace and security agenda in general in Libya. You've been uh, talking about your work with gender-based violence and I think it's kind of mandatory for me to ask you about your address to the United Nations Security Council. How was it and what was the follow-up on, on of, of that? I think that was one of the really uh, important moments of, uh, I think, of my activism, but also our activism in Libya, to bring uh, the issues of women and girls within such a very high-level platform, like the Security Council. And uh, I remember my address was particularly about sexual gender-based violence and telling the story of many of the survivors and victims of sexually gender-based violence in Libya, an issue that is not necessarily uh, talked about and actually stigmatized in my community. So to bring this in an international level and to make uh, start a conversation about this issue was so important because I wanted and we wanted in general to raise attention and to prioritize what is happening to women and girls within the, the ongoing conflict in Libya and how uh, rape is being used again as a tool in war this is one of the ugly things about war, you know, how are we using women and girls as commodity? And that was also an important time to also raise awareness about the, 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 the several violations that human rights defenders, particularly women, human rights defenders are facing in daily basis in Libya, the shrinking space of civil society and the freedom of speech that we really necessarily need to make sure that our work uh, is progressing to make sure that we actually seeing the change in Libya. And uh, the follow-up on this, I can see that one of the things that I always urge is to have attention to, to the human rights defenders, but also to start programs about sexual uh, and gender-based violence survivors. And I can see that a lot of attention have given to that, you know. I felt that this is one of the why advocacy is important, because I know that many of national and local activists and grassroots activists, they feel that sometimes that their voices are not heard. And this is what we, the advocacy that we do is useless. You know, I can, I can, I can know why they feel this way. But I feel that was one of these moments that I thought like, oh, like after all this advocacy, at least there are some like, <laughs> they're listening to us, you know, they are actually uh, trying to do something. But however, there's a lot, a lot to do, of course. And uh, I think that is my, effort but also a lot of my colleagues efforts i remember even that year another colleague of mine also briefed the, the security council so in a way that's that's also encouraged a lot of uh, the participation of the women in the of, from the global south particularly young women from the global south within these international processes that usually is very complicated that it really is very difficult to access so i think this is something to encourage the Security Council and the UN mandates in general to bring out local voices, grassroots voices within these international processes, because it is very important uh, to hear independent civil society and the particularly young women peace builders when we discuss 
uh, peace and conflict resolution uh, within the UN and within these international spaces. I'm happy to know that there was such a positive follow-up and I would recommend all our listeners to watch your address. It's perhaps difficult to watch at some points, but I think it's it's the truth that needs to be known. And to continue now, uh, and I'll quote you on this, you said in an interview in 2013, the Libyan revolution opened the door for the Libyan women to seek their rights and demand positions to be involved in negotiations and political decision-making. And I ask you now, what does the political and gender landscape look like now in 2021 in Libya? I think 2013, if you ask any activist in Libya, they will tell you 2013 is one of our favorite. 2012 is one of our favorite. We felt so free. We felt so open. We felt so... Um, there, of course, there have been so many challenges, but the, the public space and the civil society space was so vibrant and was so new and people were so hopeful, you know? And there are so many gains that women have, uh, of course, achieved because of that in enabling environment, you know? Women have claimed their space in the public, have pushed for more... Uh, women's participation, for instance. And actually, I remember that year uh, when we've had the uh, parliamentarian elections, Libya have more women in parliament than Egypt and Tunisia. And people were surprised, of course. And that was because of the push of civil society and the women's movement, the vibrant women's movement that existed at the time. Uh, today is really a little bit different, you know. We're we're dealing with COVID. We're dealing with an ongoing civil war in Libya, and these have increased the the kind of violation that uh, women human human rights defenders face in general. The civil society space it doesn't look like it's the same, you know. Even though there's so much efforts of women to still be there, however, there's a little bit of sense of isolation as well that the government uh, sometimes is used to their advantage. And I feel like, well, of course, we're still pushing, but the environment is getting harder. You know, we're still pushing for our rights, but it's the conservative culture, the the ongoing struggles for peace makes our priorities are uh, at the last in the hierarchy of priorities in Libya. I feel like people, when they think about gender equality, they think it's not a priority for peace. But we always say this, there's no peace if discrimination is continuous in Libya for all individuals. We need to end discrimination of all its forms to achieve real peace. And that's our message as women, as in the Mazakumin movement, as indigenous peoples. And I think that's so important to consider. Also, the space for civil society, it's shrinking. This year, like in Libya particularly, we can see that there's a little bit of a stability, which is we're thankful of. And this is why like you can see that there's, again, civil society to be more visible. There's some venues of civil society. However, again, the progress remain very little. And um, I think that's something that 
I, not only Libyan civil society, but all people on all stakeholders in, in Libya are responsible to make sure that we still have this civil society space. Because if this space doesn't exist, means we don't exist, you know? And I think also there's another aspect that I see that it's positive and negative, but it's positive mainly. Um, the virtual space also opened up a lot of uh, considerations for people to engage, especially young people to engage better and more in a safer and a free way. But also we can we can think it's a negative because the infrastructure in Libya is not really great either. There's a lot of long uh, power cuts and uh, internet accessibility for instance, indigenous and minorities. They don't really access internet the same ways. So there are still barriers. However, I feel like there's also opportunities for people to engage with the online space, to be, for instance, talking to you right now while you're uh, in the Netherlands, right? Like to kind of close a little bit this, the barriers of geography to Libyan people and young people in general in the world. And I feel that because everyone is attentive to the internet now, people also eager to know more and more. So even for us, like when we did, we talked, you told me about gender-based violence. Last year for our 16 of activism, we did uh, an online exhibition that we didn't do. And we were doing, like we didn't do on ground. We were supposed to do it in Tripoli, but we did it online and it received a lot of, of positive feedback because it reached to a lot of people, a lot of young people and a lot of women, not only in Tripoli. So it worked perfectly for us, you know, very, uh, very like the reach was very inclusive. That's quite an hopeful message you send us. And in that regard, and considering the political situation in Libya, where in early 2021, a UN-led Libyan political dialogue forum assigned a new interim government. And the government is called the Government of National Unity, led by Abdul Hamid al-Dabib as prime minister. And it's meant to stabilize the political scene and to organize elections on the 24th of December 2021. Now I'd like to ask you, what are your hopes for the future of Libya and how do you see these elections going? Honestly, it's, I think, as many of us in civil society and in the world, we uh, feel a lot of uncertainty about the future. You know? There's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know what's happening. And, um, and I think this uncertainty kind of uh, makes us like, lose hope. As for what we think about the elections, what we think, I think as many of civil society actors, we join our voices saying that we need a fair elections, we need a peaceful transition to power as always. And that's very important to any peace process, to have a peaceful transition to power. And, uh, and we still emphasize on our demands, which is inclusion of women, inclusions of young people within the process, um, and also finding ways and channels of how women can uh, politically continue to participate within Libya uh, for the new government. Also like, for instance, the first time the Minister of Foreign Affairs is a female, and that's really one of the, you know, I feel like this is one of the biggest achievements 
of the women um, movement struggle for uh, for political participation or more political participation. And also like this woman particularly, she's a feminist as well. She's a, she's a, she claims that she's a feminist and she has great expertise in reconciliation and restorative justice. And these are the kind of things we, we also uh, think about even like when we think about the role of women, but also the role of young people. So also we hope to see more young women are taking the lead within the new governments. But most importantly for our issues to be recognized, you know, for issues of, like we talked about women, peace and security agenda, but the peace and security agenda that involves gender equality and inclusivity to all marginalized communities and young people, it's a must for the next phase in Libya. It's an important phase. And I think it takes all of us to happen. I don't think it's only the government and the government has to realize this. It's also the civil society and also the community, the civil society that is the liaison or the the, the kind of the, um, the I, I, I don't like to call it the middle agent, but it's like the platform where is the community engaging in a, and trusting the process uh, of the government, because I think we need a lot of trust for this peace process to happen. So let's indeed hope that it will be an inclusive process and trust in that. And this is the end of our conversation. Thank you so much, Hinas. It was very interesting and inspiring to me, listening to your stories about how to make sure everyone is included, how to make sure not only that they're included, but they're also understood. And also, I would like to perhaps end with your sentence about there's no peace if discrimination continues. So thank you once again, and thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today and for contributing to a better world. Thank you for listening to the Peace Corner podcast and supporting our initiative. Feel free to share this episode with people around you who you think might benefit from it. And don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be listening from.